Hey all, Alan here, and welcome to A Journey's Rest, a podcast focused on the vast but deep set of topics about the complexity and joy of roleplay games. Whether you need to attune to a magic item, regain some hit points, change out spells, or just reminisce with friends, here we just sit down for around about an hour and enjoy ourselves. With this episode, we get into the nitty-gritty of homebrew with a friend of ours who recently escaped the shadow of a violent dictator and thus will not be using his real name. (laughs) Just kidding. It's actually everybody's favorite cryptid, Jerry. In this podcast, we discuss the what, when, and how of creating homebrew, as well as some of the resources available for creating and implementing homebrew in your games. We also discuss player-created resources and their impact on player involvement. We hope you enjoy listening this week, and if not, go pet some goats. Go pet some goats? Who wrote the last line of this one? Zach? Why are you giggling? Clancy! You didn't even give me time to do it. Silence! What the heck? I'm in silence right now. I don't know what you're at. I don't know what you're at. (laughs) Okay, well... All right, well, well at the, three, two, one, silence. Clap, say! <laughs> Here okay. we are. <laughs> How was that? Wasn't that, that nice? That was, that was perfect. That was wonderful and fantastic. All right, Hello, hi, Alan. everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Zach. That I make for you. Thank you. I'm so honestly, Zach, the fact that you make this podcast... Um, with recordings, Zach actually just has a bunch of <laughs> bunch of syllables that he has recorded from me over the years, and he just pieces them together piece by piece to make it sound like there's someone else yeah. across the way. It's pretty but challenging. But I'm actually a guest this week, and so it's brand yeah. new for me to actually experience this on the other end. Yes. So here's my guest, uh, Alan, and here is my co-host, Jerry. Jerry, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, I mean, thanks thanks for having me from the Witness Protection Program. You guys have done an astounding job of protecting, of protecting my actual identity throughout your many references to me that I've heard so far. You know, you, you've left an impact. What can I say? I, I, I certainly have. And for context of that joke, everyone, my name is Barry. <laughs> Well, I mean, well, now we cats put a lot bag, of effort I mean. into censoring that. I mean, we went, wanted to make sure that you didn't feel like, you know, you were, you know, we didn't want to, we wanted to make sure that you weren't found out. We wanted to make sure that but you of, had privacy. Yeah, the but like, if I met your brother Balin, you know, I doubt, you know, Balin or maybe like, I don't know, what's a, what's a vowel? You, you could like say anything, Dallin, Jalen, Gallon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> gallon. That there it goes. There it goes. That one's perfect. I like that. that. One's very good. There yes. is only one name for me, and it is idiot. So you know, <laughs> kind of hard to go another direction with that one. <laughs> well, so okay. this week on yeah. this week's podcast, we will be talking about. So one of you is supposed to say homebrew. what we're talking about. We're I was talking just about homebrew. Yeah, that, yes. So a big reason that we wanted to have Barry on the podcast. Oh, I can say his real name. It's a it's like a release. <laughs> it's a release. Um, no, uh, uh, the reason we wanted to have Barry on this podcast is because Barry and Zach and I are all DMs and we are all huge lovers of homebrew. Right. Um, we we have an intense um, desire to make those games that we DM 
vast and creative and our own, right? And so those type of um, those type of games require a lot of homebrew. And for us to be able to do our games that we like to play, um, yeah, that, that I thought that it was relevant that we bring in someone who also likes to do all of that uh, homebrew as well. And, I mean, we all play D&D together. Um, I think that it's been a little bit of time since Barry and Zach have played. Um, but, nonetheless, we all love playing D&D together. So, I thought it would just be dope. I guess. This dope yeah. kind of sum it up. Is that good enough? Yes. Okay. So maybe good. a good way to start would kind of be going around and each person talks about maybe their favorite thing about homebrew or or like how they implement homebrew in their games as yeah. a player or as a DM. Yeah. I don't I think know. That's a great idea. Um, Show our background. In do you want to go first, Zach? Yeah, I'll go first. Um, so I am completely obsessed with being original <laughs> so okay. i basically was taught what D is and i was like yeah that's cool but i'm gonna never follow any of these rules ever again <laughs> and only do things the hard way for the rest of my life and that has been my experience as a dm and it is an exhausting one but also a highly rewarding one to build your own systems and settings and everything and basically mm-hmm. just like fly off the handle at any given time yeah, uh, but it is also obviously a lot of work. So the majority of my experience in doing homebrew is actually probably in a very different place than than yours. I don't really create spells and items because that's kind of the last thing that you create when you're making a setting or a right. system. I mostly create broad rules. So I, I've made a lot of like what I, what I like to call species, but what the standard game calls races. Um, I've made a lot of, uh, new classes. I've made a lot of, I guess I've made a fair amount of monsters, mainly because I'm just loath to use the statistics in the monster manual for some reason. Not that they're bad. I've definitely used them before, especially when it's like not a major monster, but every boss I run, every like enemy that I actually have time to go and design, I do so. And I come up with all my own shit, which honestly... Eh, we'll talk about the pros and cons of that later on, but that's that's sure. largely my experience when it comes to homebrew is is building grandiose systems and stuff like that. And I've I'd like to say that I've gotten a lot better at it, but honestly, I don't know that you can really be good at something like that. I think it's always changing, and it really depends on like your goal. Whereas I think the concept of going after trying to create a spell or an item, I, I think that's it's a lot easier to be like definitively successful. In that, so basically, I torture myself. Is okay. What I'm at. Nice. Good. Good. When do you go now? That's it. <laughs> um, I think that I, I can go next, and then um, and then we'll have Barry go afterwards. Uh, I think that um, one of my favorite things about homebrew is I just like being a storyteller. Right? It's one of my favorite things. Um, bringing in some. Uh, some aspect of a story that I really want to tell and doing something that makes it feel like, you know, like I get to be that cool storyteller. Um, I think a really great example of this is like when I tell a, a story beat or something like that and it makes the players um, feel something really strongly emotionally, um, that to me is like the greatest success that I can have as a DM because... For me, that is 
that is a place where I have feel like where I feel like I have succeeded as a storyteller because um, those moments are always what define campaigns. And when you can define campaigns in the way that you tell stories, that is like the most important thing to me. So the different yeah. ways that you can do that is by creating, um, you know, like interesting NPCs or interesting places or interesting items or um, interesting uh, backstories with your players because everybody knows that, you know, having a good yeah. player backstory is almost one of the biggest driving uh, points to a story because no one really wants to be just like, you know, corralled around by the DM and doing what they want. They want to be able to just like yeah. feel like their story is intertwined with the greater story as a whole. And so I think that's super important to me, making sure that all that kind of stuff works together. I think there's an elegance in kind of bringing homebrew together like that, having a good backstory, which in and of itself is almost like the exact type of feeling as, as just having a homebrew um, story because, uh, you know, backstories are just homebrew, right? But they're the easiest version of homebrew or one of the easiest versions of homebrew. Um, but taking that and then building it into a story that you've created too, or a setting that you've created too, that always feels great because it makes the players feel like they're really engaged, right? They're really, um, valuably used in, in the greater scheme of things. And I think to me, that is what really makes homebrew feel awesome. So, yeah, um, that might might have been a little bit rambly, but nonetheless. No, I, I certainly liked it. Um, for me, the, the thing I enjoyed the most about homebrew is just the ability to self-express, yeah. right? D&D is a role-playing game. It can serve a lot of functions for a lot of people. For me, it's... It's being able to do things that I'd never be able to do in real life, right? You know. Yeah. Um, and and that includes a, a degree of of self-expression. Yeah. I can't wear a cape in real life. Yeah. But, damn it, I would in D and D. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, and just creating instances where, well, for me, where it all started was like basically just in aesthetics. Yeah. Right. I wanted to look and feel different than myself. I wanted yeah. to fit a role I had created. And that required bending bending some rules around and changing the way things were written. Not for the sake of function, but just because I wanted to look good and therefore feel good. Yeah. I wanted to play the role that I had envisioned for myself, but the game didn't necessarily envision for me. Yeah. But that's okay. Because the game isn't supposed to envision things for you. Yeah. No. It, it's it's all really just kind of a suggestion that allows you to have the most fun possible. Yeah, I, I would agree with sure. that for sure. And if, and if you can have more fun doing things through other methods, then, like, why not? Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that's the path to homebrew, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Just making something that you enjoy... Um, seeing in your game or, or self-expressing in a way that makes things feel more vibrant, right? Because we all have felt that situation where we'll look at some stuff from D&D and they'll be like, this land is like this. And you're like, okay, cool. And then they're like, do this this way. And you're like, mm, wouldn't it be cooler if it worked into my setting in yeah. this way? Because that always feels way better because then all of a sudden it's personal, right? It 
feels like it's yours. And um, like the the best way to do self-expression in D&D is to homebrew um, just anything that you want into the, your, your own story. And if you can uh, plagiarize to get it that way as well, that's also <laughs> just fine. Because Absolutely. what a lot of DMs won't tell you secret insider hint here we steal a lot of shit all the time and and if you don't you're doing too much work (laughs) (laughs) because like i have to i've got to look at stuff and be like wow that's really cool i want to put that in my game somehow and i'll twist it so no one really knows but oh damn now it's cool in all Uh, seriousness though i definitely want to talk about that later like doing too much work but we can get yeah, to that in a little sure. bit because there's some other aspects we should examine first. Yeah, I think there's a there's a great sweet spot in the middle, um, for sure. Mm-hmm. So, well, guys, what are what are some of your favorite ways to do that expression? So, I know for me, one of my most favorite things is to create interesting NPCs. Um, if I can find an NPC where uh, you know, I can get the players to latch onto that NPC or I can get them to latch into a storyline or something of the sort. That is one of my favorite ways to do it because it feels so central to the game. Um, uh, I, I think that's one of my favorite ways to do it. What about you, Zach? Um, well, we've kind of talked about this in past podcasts, but I, what we talked about is you really like crafting stories and narratives and characters yeah. around those characters and, and around your players and stuff like that. And I really like creating environments and, and almost like experiences and like moments, like scenes kind of. Um, yeah. And I think that those are both just, uh, yeah, like, I don't know. I think they're both, very interesting ways to to go about it um and i think okay i think that creating stories is maybe the most common homebrew or like like as far as like just dming in general um because most people will maybe play through a module but like modules are popular but they're definitely not prevalent i don't really think of a module when i think of playing dnd i think of sitting down at a table and playing a story that the dm crafted right the only other possibility that i could think of is maybe if you consider not using certain rules to be homebrew mm-hmm. that might be more common because like sure nobody keeps track of ammunition nobody wants to keep track of how much food their characters are eating even fifth edition even does a really good job of like you know like streamlining some of those things but even still they're probably the most commonly dropped rules because they're just tedious i think if there was i don't know i don't i don't know if that is a problem and needs to be fixed even i mean it's a fantasy universe how much do you really want to be focusing on that kind of thing and there's plenty of people who do use those rules but um it's definitely not common i don't think um yeah I mean, you, you, you've you used variant encumbrance. I like to be cruel, so, yeah. <laughs> okay, fair, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the second you made us keep track of our weight, I got rid of everything, and my character was a beggar who had all this free weight to carry around as yep. much stuff as he wanted, yep. because... Nothing occupied him. He had one pair of pants. He had one pound out of everything he could possibly carry. <laughs> you just dumped it all on me. I had everything that we owned. Yeah. I was like, okay, fine. I'll carry everything. That's okay. Yeah. I think in like there's there's settings where that makes sense. And there's like campaign themes where carry weight and ammunition and 
rations and all that makes sense. Um, I think it can also be really out of place. I think it is maybe presented as too basic of a rule. Maybe that stuff should be more optional than it actually mm-hmm. is presented as. Yeah. But anyway, um, so I think I think that like those are probably the most common types of homebrew. I sure. really like to. I don't. I mean, I definitely craft stories, but I I really like to create environments more than that, and I enjoy. Um, I enjoy kind of in taking my players out of their comfort zone to a certain extent, putting you in situations and environments that you don't really fully understand and encouraging sure. you to try and understand them. That's, that's what I, that's my bread and butter when it comes to homebrew and just DMing in general. So that's super fair. Um, I think something that, uh, that you Barry definitely like taught me or showed me is that. There's ways to do homebrew on a much smaller scale that are still valid and interesting and contribute to the campaign and the player and and whatever. And that is primarily, uh, maybe, I think it's probably just because of the character you played, but when you and I played together in Alan's campaign, I as a character named Moth and you as a character named Aurelius, you played, you were an artificer? I know you literally made magic items. I. I was a wizard. Mm. There was not an artificer at the time. Right, right. And so we homebrewed some of those abilities. Yeah. Yep. And, I mean, honestly, another great way that you can add a ton of style to a game is by creating magic items and kind of, like, creating spells that you can utilize for characters or things like that. Um, And and I think that's a super awesome way to just kind of, like, micro-inject this character or this life into your current character so this is a huge thing with Aurelius so Barry do you, do you want to talk a little bit about who Aurelius was and kind of how homebrew made him the final character that he became I don't know not to take it like all the way back to the beginning but this moment right now just sort of occurred to me especially when Zach said that I was the one that taught him but this spark Uh, This mother of invention actually sort of came from Zach. Zach DM'd the first D&D game I ever played, and I had severe doubts about what this game was, but I found out there was a Dragonborn. I was like, well, it's in the name. I go with that, and I picked a color, gold, because it sounded cool. I didn't really know much else, Mm -hmm. Okay, but I picked a rogue. Because, of course, like, new player favorite. Yes. Yeah. But Zach actually homebrewed the rules for starting equipment. When I found out I could have a hand crossbow, a visage of this character appeared in my mind. But this visage included two hand crossbows. I didn't imagine imagine him firing them both at the same time or anything like that. But um, it was... It was, it was just something that the game didn't account for. They, it says you get these things or these things. Yeah. And two hand crossbows was not included. But Zach said, like, who cares? If you feel cool with it, then have at it. Yeah. yeah. And that, that really, like, began cementing the idea of what was possible in D&D. So wow, interesting. I, I come back. Yeah, I come back to, like, my... Uh, the 
the game I most viscerally remember when I started getting good at D&D once I was learning the rules I created a wizard called Aurelius Redwolf but what's important to understand about Aurelius Redwolf is I had just bought all the D&D books and I was reading about paladins they seemed really cool and the idea of playing a guy who looks like a Templar to me was quite exciting and Hmm. I asked Alan to be in his game, and he's like, they have a healer. Would you consider playing a wizard? And I was like, I don't know, man. The looks are pretty important to me. But through us talking, I sacrificed, what, starting abilities and two feats to be able to wear half-plate armor? And I had this drawing of what my paladin would have looked like. And so I took his armor, I erased half of him, and I put robes on the other half. And now it was half plate, down to the letter. Yep, nice. And so, like, this idea of creating a wizard who then had access to plate armor and wanted to wear it and to do these things sort of fed back into my own drive because I wanted to do them, and obviously this character wanted to do them because he was doing them. So I had to create a reason to do it, and creating reasons to do it just made me want to do it more. And this, this, this started going from you know, this very specific colored cloak he wore. Everything was silver and gold with rich brown leather, but he always had a red cloak. And that was cemented so highly that I rejected magic items given unto me that were the color blue. Oh, I remember yeah, that. Because, like, I had offered you a blue cloak, and you were like, no, I refuse. It wasn't just a blue Cape cloak. Of the it was a it was no it was a cloak of gust oh. right it was a minor enchantment it always looked like it was flowing majestically in the wind <laughs> yes. even indoors yes. i loved it i said what color is it alan you rolled the dice and you said blue i told the shop shopkeeper thank you and i walked out the door <laughs> i refused wow. and that inventiveness sort of like this specificity right yeah um when it came to like this sword that he started wearing and the armor that he wanted to create, um, I physically drew all these things out and I knew what they would look like in my mind and I had to find a way to basically inject them into the system. Yeah. You know, I had references for what his home city looked like, but I spent a lot of time drawing that and it was just sort of this feedback loop of my character having done it so i needed to find a way to make it happen because i was in love yeah. with this visage of a character yeah. just as much as i was in love with the character and this sort of began pervading into abilities that he could provide for the party right um we had a a very uh, intelligent rogue did not distinguish the difference between a bag of holding and a bag of devouring <laughs> and lost his and lost his pinky to the ether well my character was like this smith right aurelius was this smith who grew up in this very wealthy city and had access to this magical knowledge so he was a human not really a fighter but kind of like a cross between the jock who could wear medium plate armor and um this incredibly intelligent spellcaster and so having these smithing abilities i i told the rogue hey i could replace that pinky for you and he's like oh yeah you know how, how could you do that and so i drew up this very ornate gauntlet um included with this basically prosthetic pinky 
and he's like, oh yeah, dude, that looks awesome. You know, what, what are you, what are you going to do with this? Um, or how are you going to make it? And I was like, well, I don't have any smithing metals on me, just my tools. And since I knew he was hoarding gold, I said, any metal would do. And so he hands me his quote unquote last 500 gold. Yep. And so I want to, I wind up forging this whole arm brace for him, complete with like what became these studded knuckles, yeah. um, intricate elven designs. But what's interesting is I was still trying to uh, physically create Arcanic as a language. In the D and D books, they have what Elven, Dwarvish, Draconic. Yeah. Yeah. And so I wanted Arcanic to look like something, specifically for the purposes of like my own drawings. Right? When I said runes inscribed on stuff, really quick. Um, in our setting, in, me and Barry, we de- actually DM in the same setting. Arcanic is the language that magic is written in, and so like if you can actually read Arcanic, it is um, it, it's like reading another language. But if you are a spellcaster, you automatically know Arcanic in order to cast spells. Just for context. Yeah, yeah, it's just sort of that lore piece, but I wanted to, like, tangibly be able to create this, you know, with, like, runes on the spine of blades, and in this instance, runes down the center of what became this, essentially, gauntlet. And this was a unique situation this rogue had put me in. I wasn't entirely happy with it, but this ingenuity sort of filled me and I knew that this was the moment I needed to homebrew a language even as a character in another DM's game and I was talking to him throughout this but I had plans I had a great many plans and so I my character inscribed these three beautifully carved runes on this solid gold gauntlet in his words just completely iced out oh my goodness he loved it and he loved it so much that he decided to tell me. And I said, no take backs. And he said, no, no, um, like, of course not. Why would I ever take this back? And I said, good, because it means ass. <laughs> and that was sort of like what it was canonized as, but it's just little moments like that. It's yeah. the role-playing moments. Yeah. It's just the pure aesthetics. But everything that requ- that's required to build up to those it is nothing but a pure, unadulterated outlet. Yeah, Absolutely. for creativity. It is. Totally agree. It's literally like the imagination game that you play when you're a little kid, but there's some yeah. rules yeah. to make it easier. Yeah. I, I actually think this is a super interesting way that you've kind of gone about this, Barry, because this to me kind of separates the two pieces of this possible uh, uh, portions of this podcast into two places, right? The DM-based homebrew and the player-based homebrew. Mm. I think as a DM, it's super important to cultivate your players making homebrew because then all of a sudden they feel super invested in the game because they've put more effort in, they feel more invested in this character. Um, And that's a way different thing than a DM creating a setting, right? When a person plays a character and they get to make little pieces of that character just their own, that's yeah. a completely different thing than creating a setting. And I think that it can be super personal when a character homebrews their own things. Absolutely. When I play in a game, uh, or when I get ready to play in a game, and the DM just tells me, oh, you know, just like follow the rules in the monster, ma- or in the player's handbook, and just make a character, I'm like, okay, there's nothing wrong with that. But when I get to build parts of my class and, and, 
like figure out my proficiencies with the DM instead of like through a book, right? It's always more interesting. And I will say, yeah. having played previous editions of D&D, um, 5th edition is the best for customizing your character and um, and like establishing an actual tone. I would say 3.5 has a lot more options for customizing the, the character, but it means less. It doesn't feel as genuine. Every class is just that class, See? you know. There's yeah, yeah, yeah. Unless you can flavor it however you want, but it doesn't really mean anything, and it doesn't provide right. you options for that. Um, fifth edition doesn't feel that way. But um, yeah, I think I think player homebrew is really important, and unfortunately, player homebrew gets shut down a lot because of power gaming. I think a lot of DMs yeah. are afraid that they're players will become too powerful honestly i am starting up a game now that i've been working on for a long time and it has a pretty well balanced system that i made up um but when it comes to like species traits and like monster rules and stuff like that i've done away with cr done away with pretty much any semblance of balance and i'm just like you know what i'm gonna base this off of nature and not off of numbers that i come up with out of the blue you know not off of like damage tables so i think maybe it's sometimes more interesting and and the world becomes more perilous if there is less balance it's okay to have a character who's really strong or really weak in a certain discipline right um i think it's i would also sacrifice balance for player investment i agree surely right because if my player is more invested in the game then i'm succeeding more if i get my players to invest in the game than if the encounters are balanced right um because if the players are more are more in tune with the game then they want to play the game more if I misbalance a couple encounters here and there, who cares, right? But if my players are yeah. having fun, that's the part that matters, right? Absolutely. And so, like, you know what? A lot of people are too afraid to fail. Like, failure is awesome in D&D. You got to try new things, right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, like, you know, there was one time um, that uh, we played Aurelius in the tail end of, of Dawn Guard. We didn't have an Artificer, but we wanted to just try one of them out. And I found one out, and I was like, well, this one seems to have a lot of reviews. It seems like a lot of people like it a lot. And we tried it out, and it was a little overtuned, right? That's okay. That's okay that it gets overtuned every now and then, right? Yeah. Um, you, you learn, and you make mistakes, and you move on, right? But th- if you can say, if a player is like, wow, I really want to try this out. I really want to feel like my character gets to this this um this fantasy that i can feel in my mind i would much rather fail and give them that fantasy fail in balance and give them that fantasy to succeed in their engagement than the other way around i will say first of all we've come to the rule of cool right that's what the rule of cool is it's like oh well you can't like technically when you do a grapple check you can't it doesn't do any damage, but rule of cool. If the barbarian grabs the beholder and rips him in half, cool. That's yeah. cool. Why? Who's going to argue with that? Um, but at the same time, throwing everything to the wind can be dangerous. That's why the system is there in the first place, right? It's easy to accidentally just kill players sometimes if you don't really focus yeah. on balance. It's easy to put people in situations that they don't fully understand and then there are unforeseen consequences. I also will say, yeah, it's really cool to have 
players who can do whatever they want or not do whatever they want, but like to have custom built options for the players, especially if those options are very rewarding and powerful. But if you're going to do that, you kind of have to do it for everyone. Very Because balancing your players versus the monsters is, if it's only semi-important, they're supposed to beat them in the end anyway, maybe with the struggle, maybe not. But balancing the players against each other is very important. If one player yeah. feels like they're way more powerful than all the others, that's just going to lead to problems. That's just going to lead to division. So homebrew, I, I think agree. anyone who's attempted it or know, even probably knows what it is can agree that homebrew is very tricky. It is not an easy thing to, to create. So yeah. let's talk then about the resources that the base game provides us for creating homebrew because there are some rules I don't know if I like them, but I'm very judgmental yeah. when it comes to this kind of thing, right? So yeah. there's rule let's see. There's rules for creating spells. There, yep. is there there's rules definitely rules for creating monsters, fairly robust yeah. ones. Um, although one of the first things they say for both creating spells and creating rules is, Oh, well, have you looked through the codex? Have you looked through the monster manual and all the spells? Have you just based it off of something else? And it's like, no, I want that's not I want to make my own. What are you talking about? Yeah. yeah. Um so they provide I, rules for those things. Do they provide rules for creating items? They do, actually. Yep. Yeah, and explicitly magic items and sentient magic items, too. I wouldn't even know. <laughs> cool. And those were, those were like, very almost, like, out of touch and unattainable there for a while. Mm. Like, if your character wanted to create a magic item, you were going to have to spend months, yeah. perhaps even years, in-game dedicating yourself yeah. to this. Yeah. But one big advantage of Eberron and the Artificer is the Wizards of the Coast giving players the rule of cool, essentially. Yeah. It loosened up on those rules a little bit yeah. and created a very, very interpretable class. Mm that gave you a lot of freedom and gave you a lot of reward for that freedom. If you That's if you cool. didn't want to be creative, then you're you're just kind of SOL in that aspect. Hmm. And the artificer that they gave us is specifically trying to almost cultivate homebrew. Yeah. But maybe not in the sense that we think of it. Yeah. It's just cultivating originality. That's awesome. Sure. But I would call that homebrew. Yeah. Absolutely. That's I would say cool. that um, we could talk about the the pieces that Watsi has given us um, for for all of this, but honestly, I think I think they fall short. Honestly, I, I don't think that they yep. really. It just feels too constrained. Maybe that's maybe what I was going to say. Is, is, the, is I, the way? Yeah, I totally agree with what you said, Barry. It it not only the rules for creating magic items, but just all of the rules for creating homebrew, they feel out of touch. They feel like yeah. they're difficult to grasp, and then once you do grasp them, the things you create don't really feel like they're on par with everything else that already exists. So, right. I as a game creator, as someone who makes my own settings and my own rules, have struggled with this a lot trying to reverse engineer um uh systems that they came up with and figure out is this all just random or d is there some kind of pattern that they use to construct these rules that i can figure out um pathfinder came out with like a a racial codex i think it was called or something like that and there was extensive rules in there for this whole like point system for creating races and um guess what <laughs> They mostly suck. 
again. Like, <laughs> like for some reason, they're so focused on these systems of checks and balances that yeah. they're not okay with having things just be really cool. I have struggled with that a lot. Um, for my setting, Edia, I've made a whole giant slew of different species that can be played um, and races within those species or genetic groups within those species. Um, but they, again, sometimes are really strong, sometimes are really weak. And I think I'm only now starting to come to terms with the idea that every single species should have some serious advantages in something. They should have something that they can do that's yeah. really cool, right? Nobody yeah. plays a species because it's bad. Not really. Sure. They play it because it's it's interesting in some way, right? And that should be yeah. accompanied along with it. But um, it's neither here nor there. I agree that I think that the rules for creating stuff, in, even in-game, are bad. Like, even if you don't even want to sure. make a magic item, if you just want to probably, like, forge a sword... First of all, I don't know if there are rules for that. There probably are, but no DM uses them because they're not robust and they're not right. well integrated into the game and they're not well understood. Whereas that's practically never the case with like fantasy RPG video games, right? Like Skyrim, like enchanting things and and uh, smithing is like the fastest way to power. That's that's the sure. best way to grow in that game and and even in things like uh dragon age inquisition the the crafting system is very interesting and robust and honestly most of the loot in that game seems to be based around crafting your own gear and stuff like that yeah. and i i've always really liked that idea and that really liked that concept and i think with the like um material based structure of D and like trying to get loot that should be a factor way more than it is and so i've experimented with a lot of different systems with with uh, loot and crafting and and learning things and stuff like that and the system that I've been developing lately focuses on that quite a bit. There's um, yeah, we don't have to talk about that system, but it it I I am almost obsessed with creating rules for learning things outside of the leveling system and for making items and stuff like that that really don't have yeah. anything to do with your class and just because sure. you can and that's really cool and interesting. So. Yeah, I I think that um, I, I totally agree with that. I think that the best way to homebrew things is to homebrew the rules about homebrewing things. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you were to just be like, okay, well, I don't really know how to make a creature. I'm just going to kind of take a bunch of these things and then take a bunch of these things and slap them together. Yeah. Cool, new creature, right? Make totally. it easy. Don't make it hard, right? Don't be like, okay, this creature, to make it CR4, you have to take this many hit points, and then you have this much power budget. It's like, yeah. why would I, why do, why, why do I want to do this? Like, well, they like doing much. that, and then the, the other thing that is very popular is templates, especially in 3.5. I don't know if they're still as popular in 5th edition, but oh my god, there was a template for every element. There was a template for fiendish creatures, for angelic really? creatures, all kinds of crap. It was honestly overwhelming <laughs> there was templates for fusing one creature with another you could make things a hydra it was like wow it's just bonkers yeah no not I, I reasonable just, it's it's too many rules right yeah. just like just throw things at the wall have fun making them don't make it a chore right yeah i would say like so for example the first time that i ever like i talked to barry about making spells do you remember this barry yep yeah so i was just like all right Let's make a spell. And Barry, you said something along the lines of, like, how do I do this? I'm, 
yeah, I'm not smart enough to do that. That is beyond my understanding. Spoiler alert. And like, I could draw a, I could re, like, I could recreate the visage of, like, a magic item. You know, if it didn't look like what I wanted it to, I was capable of doing that. Mm -hmm. And then you said, let's make a spell. Oh, I panicked. Oh, I panicked. Oh, I was... Every time I thought about D&D, I I started stressing for like two weeks because I didn't even know where to begin. Yeah. But that's the point. There there aren't a lot of rules and what there are are very broad and interpretable, yet also somehow Mm -hmm. strict. Yeah. I don't know. I would classify them only as ineffective. Sure. But I think... I, I don't know how much blame there is for those optional rules that DMs are capable of taking when they are, one, listed as optional, and two, 5e has been praised yeah. out of all versions that have come out for its low barrier to entry. That's super fair. That's true. But, yeah, anyway, so I started, I started panicking about these spells until Alan, Alan gave me the idea, and he said, okay... Pick one you like and find an aspect of it that you don't and change it. Just change one thing about the spell. If you change if you change it to make it more powerful, try take it up a level. If you change a thing to make it less powerful, make it a lower level. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just sort of based off that. Still took me a while to get, but oh my god, after a few days when I realized, like, not necessarily the damage outputs of dice and how they relate, but when looking at all the components of a spell and breaking them down into, you know, coincidentally yeah. a template, you know, casting time, casting components, um, level dis- uh, description things like that at higher levels I just created this template and once I realized how to break down spells into like their different aspects you know take the paragraph that they give you and all the all the contextual information about casting it you can take that modify it for yourself I did go kind of nuts there for a while <laughs> yes but it's not hard to homebrew I, I think it looks daunting to a lot of people but really it's if you especially if you if you want to create balanced homebrew like just take something and modify one thing right i mean yeah like, it really just starts with an idea and, yeah and that can come from something that already exists that's probably the easiest way to come up with an idea yeah exactly like i was saying earlier dms plagiarize because we want to come up with like everybody else has already done the work for making cool stories why don't we just change it a little bit to make it ours, make it yeah. work within our realm, right? I mean, and so the same thing happens with spells. The same thing happens with monsters. Same totally. thing happens with items. Yeah, art imitates life, mm-hmm. um, and and uh, in certain aspects, we can't apologize for having access to the information that we have access to. And and a great example of that that I think is like the plagiarism we kind of joke about, but it's as close as any of us would ever actually go to like quote unquote stealing someone's work because I don't believe that anyone, any one of us has ever actually done that, mm. but just taking inspiration from the world around us yeah. like Ebonvale. Totally. You could, you could talk about that yeah. because sure you saw something like that's not yours, yeah. but you saw it and you put it into D and think, I think that's worthwhile to discuss as just sort of like a homebrew. 
Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I can go on about that. Um, uh, basically, I took a trip to Europe maybe about two years ago, a year or two years ago, um, before we were all locked inside forever and we were in the bad times. Um, <laughs> I <laughs> I went to Germany. I love Germany. It. My sister lives in Germany, and I was so excited to go and visit her. And I was just absolutely floored when I saw... Um, the Cologne Cathedral, the Cologne Dome, and it was so magnificent. I think I took somewhere upwards of like a hundred pictures of the inside of the Cologne Dome because wow. I was so beyond in awe at the magnificence of the masonry, of the architecture. It was just so wonderful and wondrous, and my brain just could not control all of the desire that I had to... Um, to take this and transform it into something that I could keep, right? I could keep forever, right? And I could take this and put it into a D&D session, into a D&D setting, and I could uh, wow. I could make something all out of it just for me, right? And so I basically made this entire city called Ebonvale that uh, was on this sundered mountain and at the very peak of this fallen mountain, um, there was a church, which was modeled after the Kuna Dome. And then I started making a whole religion around it. And then I started making people to live in this city. And then I started creating things that went on in the city and then how people operated around this area. And all of that just kind of stems from those pieces of inspiration because it can come from anywhere, right? Uh, you could come up with a cool sword because you like the way that Excalibur works, right? You could come up with the sword in the stone um, uh, storyline. You could come up with a religion because you like a certain way that religion works in the real world, right? Yeah. And all that type of stuff can really come together in these incredibly intricate and creative ways and it doesn't even have to be you stealing something necessarily but inspiration can branch in so many different ways yeah, to create yeah. beautiful homebrew and i don't want to sidetrack us too bad um i just want to say as a dm i'm not publishing that if i was ever going to publish something then i would make sure it was all original content but i'm not publishing it as a dm so my focus goes less from like oh i'm stealing this and more to like doing it justice, you know? There are yeah. certain things that you can take that are probably okay, and that, that, like, other fiction is definitely, like, open game. Honestly, I really like to put in aspects of fiction that I don't think anybody in the party has ever seen before, and then, yeah. for me, it's familiar, but for them, it's fresh. But I will say, um, I don't want to get too far into this, because I think this is maybe another podcast, but Oriental campaigns are cool and also sometimes problematic because that is taking sure. a real thing in the real world that is a real culture and like a real like history and it is portraying it in a game and that's fine there's nothing wrong with that and in fact it can actually be done very tastefully but it can also not be if you're yeah. you know if your uh a dm like starts doing very there i don't know i don't want to get into it but there's a lot of different things that can happen there that don't do that culture justice and may portray sure. it in a negative way so that is more where i'm like wary as a dm than i, I then can understand like, that oh i totally i mean previous to doing this podcast i literally was just pretty much verbatim like copying down an scp 
<laughs> yeah. For for a campaign that I'm going to run like that that's that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I think that's super interesting that you say that, Zach, because I think that putting a lot of effort into making sure that you do justice to the things that you get inspiration from, mm -hmm. like I think that's super valuable to do that because like, for example, the example that you gave, like, a lot of people c can, like, bastardize that kind of stuff and just make totally. it not, like, like not true to what it deserves to be. Uh, and, and like you said, we, we don't have to go too far into it. But I think that, um, especially when you do that, just like, keep in mind that that type of stuff is really important to people, um, especially of the people yeah. of that culture, and making sure that you represent it in a way that doesn't, like, make it... I think make it unsound in the sense of it being honored is really important. Well, and even let's I'll bring up an example that is neither here nor there and it's a lot easier to swallow. Um, and that is that not a campaign that I played in or even was aware of while it was going on, but a campaign that I've heard a lot about from multiple people past tense is a campaign that basically took a certain D&D podcast um, and verbatim copied it and there was no it was oh, all yeah. railroad there was no yep. like choice it was just that it was just that game and a bunch of players who were all being puppeted puppeteered by this dm you know and that was yeah. not doing that campaign justice that was yeah. not doing that setting justice at all you can't yeah deadlift like the whole or you can't copy and paste the whole campaign and all the characters and everything and then expect everybody to just have a great time, especially if they're right. not in on it. So, totally yeah, agree. it was um, – that's a good example of how not to do homebrew. I totally agree. I totally agree. So, anyway. Awesome. Um, so, yeah. So, okay. So, we've been talking a little bit about what uh, the actual system provides rules for creating as far as homebrew goes. But I also want to talk about, I mean, and we also kind of talked about where that edge lies. I now want to talk more about, like, um, kind of how much you should invest. And, like, kind of, I forget exactly what you said, but you said something earlier that was, like, the, the not, like, working yourself to death, basically. Because this is a oh, problem yeah. for me. This is probably my greatest weakness as a DM, I would say, is I don't make... I don't reach for the low-hanging fruit. I don't make the easy things until the end because I know that they're easy to make, which actually right. then is kind of paradoxical because it makes them hard to make for me because I have less experience with it because I just never do it. That includes yeah. creating spells, creating items, creating like, you know, anything like that that's on the smaller scale. I don't do that as a DM. I make big stuff and my projects are so grand in scope that I never get down to making the small stuff. D&D &D does not... Okay. The Dungeon Master's Guide in 5th edition, to me, is the least valuable book. Because of the three original ones. Because the Player's Handbook is obviously crucial, but no DM really uses the Dungeon Master's Guide, maybe except for magic items. I think those are in there. They use the Monster Manual for everything. They run their games out of the Monster Manual. And that is because the things that are in the Dungeon Master's Guide are too amorphous and too general they have rules mm. 
or not even rules, kind of just lists of things you can choose from, different types of religions, different types of settings that already exist or that you could create, you know, all kinds of different, like, pantheons for religions. And it's just um, too broad and not specific enough and doesn't help you yeah. enough because almost anything that you would create in that situation, you would have to do other homebrew for for instance, if yeah. you want to create a setting wherein there's just two planes instead of a bunch of them, then you either have to reflavor a whole bunch of spells or you have to go through and redesign them or take out the ones that don't work anymore, yeah. such as plane yeah. shift. You know, I've done that. That's Edia. There's only a spirit realm and the and the material realm. There is no other planes. There's no plane of elemental water and stuff like that. Yep. So that is a big change. Do demons then exist? Do aberrations exist? Where does everything come from? What do I do if I want to make things on the spirit realm? Do I then have to homebrew a bunch of monsters and stuff? Or am I supposed to go and reflavor everything that comes from another dimension in D&D, you know? D&D encourages you to do things like that, but then doesn't back it up. They don't help you create those things, really. It's all up to you as a DM. So that's a lot of work. To, yeah. to decide to make that change uh, unless you really narrow things down and streamline things a lot. Um, so what is a lot of work versus what is a little work? You said that you think homebrew should be simple, and I agree with that. Um, but the fact is it's not usually. So how do you get around that, Alan? And sure, Barry. I think, yeah, taking taking a little, like little chunks of it at a time, I would say, are is, is super important. Um I think one thing I'd like to go forward really quickly and ask a question to you, Barry, if that's okay. Has there been times where you try and prepare for a session and you feel like you're woefully unprepared and then all of a sudden you have to like rush and make a ton of those types of pieces and homebrew a ton of stuff really quickly or like... Um, do you generally like kind of work ahead as much as you can before you start a session? And how does your type of prepare preparation for a session work? And does that feel like a lot of work for homebrew or like, do you pull other things to kind of like lessen that amount of need for homebrew? Cause like Zach's saying, we don't want to do a lot. But we want to make it feel like, I mean, sometimes there is a lot, right? But sometimes uh, we want to, like, really grind those things down into smaller pieces. So how do you go about um, about pushing homebrew into your game while not feeling overwhelmed? Because I know that there have been times when we've all felt kind of in that realm. But what's your general strategy for that type of stuff? Um, I've been all over the board on this, and to be honest, I I'm still finding my groove. I've grown a lot, but I'm not going to say that I don't have a lot more growing left to do. I mean, there were times, especially towards the start of the campaign, when I didn't know what being a DM was, and I didn't understand your characters to the point of being able to prepare um, materials that I felt were relevant mm and specific and like emotionally tied to each and every one of you that's very interesting sure. and and then the um I, I guess the overthinking sets in uh, before yeah. every session i'd list um 
I'd list as many avenues oh, no. as possible that you guys could go down. Um, I'd just pre-create a bunch of NPCs. Um, yeah. Before I realized, um, foolishly enough, that there were like NPC generators, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, um, not just not being aware um, of those materials, you kind of have to homebrew to supplement a lot of it. Yeah, and I wound up just creating a ton of materials that I never used and never intended to use, but they were just backups and. That's homebrew as a waste of time. That's Ooh, unnecessary yeah. homebrew, yeah. which is an interesting aspect. That's I, very I think, fascinating. Yeah. I think that you can generally sometimes kind of move that around, but sometimes if you create things that are too specific to a certain thing, like a certain scenario or a certain place, it can be hard to move those around, and then it becomes wasted space. And I think there's a yeah. certain there's a certain je ne sais quoi to kind of making something that's halfway in between being um, extremely detailed and keeping things open ended and kind of having these broad strokes for homebrew uh, in in like setting based homebrew yeah. of course um, and and trying to fill in the blanks as they come because right you could create a million avenues but that's like dm 101 right like if you create too many avenues you're gonna burn yourself out before you even get to play the game that you're excited about playing you know what i mean it's literally my life <laughs> described the last several years of my existence but i love it well I love zach ha you enjoy doing that though there's a difference yeah, so i think different people have different capacities mm -hmm. this is it's very interesting to hear you say that that was wasted homebrew uh barry because that's something that Alan and I have kind of already covered on the podcast, but that's really like DM the burnout. central divergence, right? Is I create for the setting. I'm like, oh, well, I didn't use it this time, but I'll use it in the future. I create things that almost certainly won't come up, but I don't do it for the session. The session is not my end game. The setting is my end game. Creating like this other world is my end game. So Thanos that. <laughs> But yeah, I, I mean, and that's fine. That's just like different. Maybe it is a waste of time. Maybe not. It's it's neither here nor there. I think. I guess it really um, it takes it's it's what you get out of it, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So it sounds like there's a lot of desire to um, just create things that feel fulfilling, right? And for Zach, that feels fulfilling when he creates that. Um, that setting, right? That he can feel like it feels rich and full, right? Yeah. And for uh, for me, it's when I get those pieces of the players where they're latched into my game, right? And when I can create things that they love in my game, that's when I feel fulfilled in doing homebrew. And whether that's a spell, whether that's a magic item, hmm. whether that's an NPC, whether that's a setting, those things pretty much solely link back to how they affect the players because um at a certain point i'm only going to dm in the places that they go right and yeah. so for me those are the most important things to prepare yeah and I've, I've heard of a lot of settings that end up getting fleshed out that way as they just run multiple campaigns in the same setting and so different places get fleshed out and and that's fine that you you can flesh out parts of a region and just have everything happen there and that's actually probably yeah that's definitely easier as a dm and it's probably better because that way as the dm you're not trying to like juggle a thousand things at the same time yeah um 
So, considering that, and considering the idea of wasted homebrew or wasted effort, um, what are some of the best examples of homebrew that you've created or that you've experienced from another DM that you thought was fantastic? And what are some of the worst examples? And kind of how did those situations arise? Like what was the homebrew, but also how was it like implemented? That's I definitely want to touch on this. I've kind of been waiting on this particular topic for Okay. Okay. I like this one. <laughs> um I I want to go around in kind of like a circle then. Do we want to do all best and then all worst? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um all right. So, uh I will say Barry, what is the best that you have seen in your grand looking at all of D&D? What is the best homebrew piece that you can pick out from something in a game that you've played in or DM'd? It's oh a hard question. Good. Top of your head. Yeah, that's, first thing. It's a, that's a lot more broad yeah. than like homebrew I've created that I felt was valuable. Maybe like the first thing that but comes to your mind. I I would I think it almost have to be the Demians. Ooh, Ooh, that was the most extensive, yeah. the most rewarding. That was just you and I sitting down as players and giving ourselves a motivation, a reason to exist yeah, in a way in this world and creating a reason for us to want to play together. Uh, yeah, we, I agree. Uh, uh, we were we played as brothers. Yep. And we wanted a reason to do it and we had to create so many reasons to do it. Yeah. Yeah, that was well, pretty cool. I agree with that. Yeah, I I totally agree. That was that was an awesome time. Uh, just for reference, everybody, once again, uh, me and Jerry slash Barry Kappa, uh, we played in a game. <laughs> I'm so used to calling him Jerry now on the podcast. It's like not even a thing that I could move away from. Uh, me and Barry created uh, brothers named Malak and Raven, and they were a race called Demians, which is relatively similar to the current 5e race of tiefling and we wanted to really come up with an awesome way that we could work them into the setting that zach had created for edia and so i think that we just sat down and talked about how they interacted with the world for so long maybe you know an entire day of of playing was just us sitting down with zach just us three getting ready for the campaign where we would just come up with yeah. the way that we interacted with the world what our culture was like what our um our backstory was like what we did to get to where we were how long it had been since we left this place to this place totally. and how we interacted with people um di just different things like that and it was probably one of the most fulfilling character creations that that i've done uh almost ever that so was that, yeah that's an awesome yeah, thing Barry. not gonna lie yeah yeah again it, it to me raven began with this visage because you gave me a name um ravon of the sith from the star wars knights of the old republic mm -hmm. i said nah raven because that carries so many implications that I could dive into. Yeah, totally. And so these like three characters that I associated with Raven sprung to my mind, and it was Darth Maul from Star Wars: The Clone Wars, the animated series. Yeah. And um, the Meta from Red versus Blue and John Wick. Yeah. Damn. And so coalescing all of those together into a personality, a demeanor a posture yeah um 
all of that together with all of Alan's inspiration, um, putting those together, Zach, we derailed the hell out of your first session. You said you guys are walking along a road and you see a group of slavers. And then... That was that. <laughs> we cut you off. Yep. Alan and I cut you off and we said we hate slavers. <laughs> and and set out buying all of their slaves just to free yep. them. Yep. We spent all of our yeah, money that we had just to crew. That was slaves. a whole thing because of that. Yeah, and I was yeah. like, oh man, this all whole of our starting is wealth, people yep. like this. Oh god. Yep. And then we just had like a group <laughs> of 20 people and Zach I, I was like, what's your name? And Zach's like, Marvin. <laughs> 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 and then I would go to another person. I'm like, what's your name? And he's like, Coolio. <laughs> and it was much. just like, <laughs> it was just like this constant movement of different people. But like, and I mean, that I, was it was the best homebrew I ever did. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it did. And that's that. Was, that yeah, like, awesome. yeah, that, yeah, that was the player homebrew, too. Yeah. I mean, Alan, you've used it in your game. There's basically a Catholic and Methodist sect of your religion to the god and goddess of death because we homebrewed our characters with so much um, intention, perseverance, and just love yeah. for what we wanted them to be that though we were still together, we created two entirely separate people yeah. but bound by this unbreakable bond. Yeah. Like... Um, uh, an aspect of this was uh, our, uh, the, the matriarchal and patriarchal roles in this setting that Zach had created, Edia, were reversed. Um, women were seen as generally more powerful, powerful and mm -hmm. um, deserving of a higher status, and the men were, were not. So we kept ourselves clothed. Yeah. Um, very tightly like up to the neck and everything yep. until our commitment to our religion that we had formed um raven decided basically to go around shirtless all the time as a front to everything that he had devoted his yep. life to yeah. yeah and then got a bunch of tattoos about all the nicknames he had accrued over the years <laughs> for his warrior status yeah. and yep and the tattoos were made with blood that he had ransacked from his enemies yeah. and stolen from them and kept in a sack. That was Raven cool. was so edgy. It was pretty. <laughs> yeah, edgy. it was. Yeah, it I was loved just it, complete edge. Yeah, and that's the point. Homebrew can be incredibly, incredibly valuable from all aspects. Mm -hmm. And what you can't forget from homebrew is the players are there to tell a story just as much as the GM is. Totally. Yeah, and the GM is there to experience just as much of the story as the players totally are. Totally agree. And working in conjunction by keeping that in mind will really flesh out the world and will make a lot of efforts valuable. You really can attune into what the world has, yeah. mm -hmm. what it needs, and what it will need in the future. Yeah, I totally agree. And that's all homebrew. Yeah. Totally. Zach, well, that was what? a fucking bonkers dude example. yeah dude that was that was awesome that was such a good example how are we supposed to follow that up dude that's rude you just like we're not gonna good be luck. able to come around from that one <laughs> that was good good though no seriously um uh, i totally agree with you barry i think that that was an awesome time and it was one that we all got to share together it was so fun to share all of that honestly um zach what about you my home doggy what do you oh. think was well. your 
favorite homebrew that you had experienced? Um, from a certain like manner of speaking, creating a character is kind of homebrewing because that's the whole thing, right? Is you're not making someone who already exists. Uh, some yeah. people do, but um, no, I would I would have to say that I think my favorite homebrew of all time has to be probably Gauthak Thunderfist. Gauthak Thunderfist is a character who was originally a player character, but who I have taken and molded and greatly modified. Uh, and it is a character, a very powerful, potent character in the Edia setting. And Gauthak interacted with you guys quite a lot throughout that yep. campaign. Um, and he plays a very important uh, and very rare role in that campaign as probably one of the only actually friendly like people who knows what's going on and is like yeah. willing to interact with the players and meet them halfway and and all of that and and so Gauthak has uh it was originally a player character um but it has since become my kind of voice almost in that campaign and I really I just really like it I don't know I like that it yeah. feels like somewhere between me and someone else I don't know. Sure. It's very real, you know. And there's there's other characters who are similar who are past uh, uh, player characters. Actually, your characters now take that similar place in that campaign. But, um, yeah, something about that one in particular just I that character concept really clicked with me. And I can empathize with it a lot. And, and it has – it's definitely not like the most flawless homebrew I've ever made. But I think it is yeah. my favorite. I think it is – probably the most genuine and the most effective. Um, and so for everyone at, at home listening, um, what, what makes Galthak cool? Who is Galthak? Galthak is, um, he is a very uh, handsome Goliath. Um, I believe he is a, now he is a homebrewed class, um, which is an avatar. But initially, he was somewhere between, like, paladin, fighter, barbarian, and cleric. It was a whole mishmash. We played it in 3.5, so, you know, it was just toss-up. But um, <laughs> Gauthak is an avatar of the god of nature in Edia, Barclaw. And he is simultaneously very, like, down-to-earth and reasonable as a person, but also has this unshakable belief in like truth and honor and um is very willing to hear people out but at the same time is extremely stalwart and will not give people um the room to feel their own uh uh insignificance or um like i don't know trauma i guess like when someone sure. expresses weakness in his presence he supports them but he doesn't enable them and i really like that aspect of him it's like that. very unique to have that in a DD campaign because you don't see it a lot i guess and you definitely yeah. don't see it a lot in the edia setting so it's yeah. nice it's nice what about you alan what's your favorite homebrew um i think my favorite homebrew that i i ever came up with um because it seems like we're kind of like moving into those that kind of territory yeah um my favorite homebrew that i came up with was an accident right and mm. My favorite homebrew that I ever made was a character named Carrick. And yeah. Carrick was originally this throwaway NPC. And he was like, hey, guys, my sister's caught in this tower. Hope she doesn't die. Go in there. Help them save uh, that 
person. And <laughs> then all of a sudden, all the PCs were like, this is our favorite character now. And I said, wait, no, guys, this is just a, this is a dumpy boy. Don't, like, there's no reason, there's no reason to get hyper attached to this kid. He's just this dumbass small, uh, small boy, and he has nothing to offer you except for charm. And they said, but that's what we like. <laughs> and mascot, mascot. Mascot. He became yes. our son. Yeah, he did. And so, but the thing was, he was an accident, right? And so bringing him forward in that campaign, I had no idea where the campaign was going to go. And then all of a sudden, people started caring about him. And then people started wanting him to be around more and wanting to teach him how to help him grow up, uh, how to move into becoming a, um, a person that would interact with the world someday. And as that started going on more and more, Carrick took on more of a larger and larger and larger role. And all of a sudden, Carrick was the center of the campaign on accident. And Carrick yeah. accidentally became a time traveler later in the game, kind yeah. of. It was really complicated. He became the and story. We could, we could go through and, and tell all of it. Uh, eventually, I think we should. And, and I'd like to do that eventually, have like mm -hmm. a, a, a game series where we kind of give a synopsis of the game and then interview yeah. people in those sessions. But Carrick was an accident, right? And then all of a sudden, he became the central piece of this story um, just because people liked the way that I played him. I, it was just this lightning in a bottle of me playing a character that was empathetic and could be empathized with. And, yeah. you know, I mean, everybody can understand and be empathizing with someone who has lost a loved one, right? And especially when it feels like um, they had no control over that right? That's super empathizable. And I didn't think that was as big of a deal as it became, but all of a sudden it became the most important thing in the entire campaign on accident. And I think that's even sometimes my favorite stuff is when you can kind of like start to take those threads that you accidentally put into a game and weave them all together on accident. Right, yeah. so like I have like like these five different things, and all of a sudden they look like the same thing, and they could be connected to the same thing. But guess what? You're the DM. They are if you want them to be, right? And all of a sudden your campaign becomes so much more vibrant because you can take those different threads and smaller pieces of homebrew and pull them into one large thing after weaving them small over Absolutely. the course of the beginning of the set the campaign. And so no, Carrick I mean, became this accident, and he was my favorite because he was an accident, and because people loved that he was an accident uh, NPC becoming popular. Honestly, Carrick kept making those waves. Like, I joined that campaign later on, and I made a character named Moth, who was a hobgoblin who really did not like humans very much, and Carrick turned that around in him. So even, like, I don't know how many months and sessions after... The, after Carrick had made his initial wave and had started changing the the game around him, he's continued to do so, and that's very valuable. I I totally see what you're saying. Yeah. So Barry, Barry, do you remember? Like, you were kind of towards the beginning of the campaign. I think you were the first session that Carrick was ever introduced. Um, do you remember kind of just him becoming on accident this this centerpiece? 
yeah, literally. Um, he was introduced as this child. Uh, my character, Aurelius, was this protector. And as someone who had never had a son or a romantic interest of any kind, I saw him and knew that he had powers similar to my own as just this kind of like little itty bitty baby teeny tiny spellcaster and I thought I will mentor this child yeah <laughs> yeah and then all of a sudden that became a huge piece of who Aurelius was totally yeah exactly totally so I think he was that's why he was one of my one of my favorites just because there was no reason for him to be that way but he became so on accident. I think I agree with all three of those examples. Those are all good examples. So now, yeah. let's turn it right around and talk about oh, no. the worst examples of homebrew that we can come up with. Oh, no. Barry, do you want to start again? God, worst examples of homebrew. I mean, yeah, that's a, that's a tough concept, yeah. and I'll sort of preface why as I try to come up with this idea, as I have been. All of my ideas are just interjections of things I want mm. in D&D, but can't have in real life. Yeah. Cool-looking swords, armor, abilities, stories, things like that. It's tough to ever admit that those fragments of myself are non-favorable to me that's fair because they are reflections of myself my creativity my effort i cherish all of them yeah so yeah i'll continue to sit on that and mullet alan what do you have yeah um i think one of my least favorite ways to homebrew is to remove i think that i have had so many people in the past say oh well you're playing a rogue well in my in my game i don't let rogues have sneak attack because I hate it. I hate sneak attack. Yeah. Oh, or you're a rogue. I don't want you to have evasion because it makes the game too easy for you. I think my least favorite way of homebrewing is removal of abilities. And I remember this one game I played that was incredibly frustrating because I picked a fighter because I knew that I wanted to do this uh, eldritch knight that once again, I had this visage of how he looked. I just saw this suit of armor bathed in flame, carrying this giant Zweihandler, and I knew that this was the character that I wanted to play, right, in this campaign. And I played him like, I want to cast a spell and then action surge and then slap someone twice with my big sword, right? I just knew that was the thing I wanted to do. And then I got into the game and I say, okay, I action surge. And my DM's like, what do you mean? It's like, I, I action surge. That's my that's one of my abilities as a fighter. And he was like, well, action surge doesn't work that way. And for anybody who doesn't know the rule, in 5e, action surge allows you to take another standard action. And so that could be casting a spell, or that could be having a weapon attack, uh, or if you're level 5 or higher, um, possibly multiple weapon attacks. But basically, I say, okay, well, I want to action surge. And he said, no, 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 action surge gives you one extra attack. That's it. And I said, well, that's not what that's not what it says. And I have this whole thing in my brain where I want to cast a spell and then attack. You know what I mean? Like, I want to look real cool in this turn. And he's like, no, you get one attack. That's all that action surge does. You don't get to move. You don't get to do anything. It's not like an actual action, which it says in the book. But that, like, deflated me. 
I was so excited to play this character and do this thing, even if it was small, right? You know, like, casting a spell and attacking twice is not a big deal, right? Especially it's since not... you can only do it, like, once per rest or something like that. Right, once per long rest. And it's not a big deal, right? It's just, it's something super small. But when you have this idea that players have and then all of a sudden you just rip that away from them that is the easiest way for a player to feel deflated in in that campaign right i think my i would also add on in that same campaign the sword that i had was controlled by another player so the the other player basically said how you are treating me as a player is how strong your sword gets. And that felt really bad because then all of a sudden I was like oddly subservient to that player. And wow. that just like sucked. So yeah, that I think was not I a think, good campaign. Yeah, I, I, I liked a lot of that campaign, but there were some parts where I was just like, it feels really weird doing this. Um, so I just think my least favorite way of homebrewing is removal, is taking something away from mm-hmm. someone. Giving them something else or exchanging something is totally reasonable. For example, uh, when we were playing Aurelius, the level 11 ability of War Mage sucked a lot, and it was not fun. (laughs) And and Barry was like, well, can I exchange it for something that the War Mage is created out of? Because War Mage is abjuration and evocation, so can I swap it for a abjuration feat? And I said, you know what? Or for the abjuration level 11 feature. And I said, well, that just seems awesome. Yes. Why don't we just do that? You're losing yeah. something and you're gaining something of uh, that is also balanced across the same value. And yeah. of course, he had to do a little bit of work to do it, right? In game, it was like we we kind of made it a little bit of like a downtime thing. But that was cool. And that was rewarding for Barry. But like taking that away, if, I, if he was just like, oh, I hate this. I'm like, well, okay, you just don't have to have it. That'd feel shitty. Then that level means nothing, and he's just like, oh, great. So exactly. that's fantastic. So yeah, I'm just weak my, my least favorite way of homebrewing is taking away. Yeah, I think that's a really good point to bring up, Alan. And I think my my example, one of, I have, I'm caught. I have two, so I'm just going to say them both because I don't care. Do it. Uh, your rules mean nothing to me. But one okay, of them rude. is very similar to what you said, and it was a magical item. This whole campaign was honestly just a shit show. Um... We weren't even really using an addition. He used rules from 3.5, but then he wasn't familiar with 3.5 and didn't have the books. So that was crazy. He was familiar with second edition. So we used okay. a lot of second edition, which didn't work. What? Yeah. Um, and so the so- he, he gave this he gave us this magic item. I honestly don't even remember how it came about, but he gave us socks of time walking. What? <laughs> So you could put them on and walk through time. And we were like, okay, none of us asked for this at all. And there's no reason for this to be in the game. It was not plot relevant. And so then we were like, okay, well, okay, I put them on and I start walking back in time. He's like, oh. And I was, <laughs> he just freaked out. And I was like, well, they're so- socks of time walking. You, you thought we would just not use them? He basically gave us the ability to walk through time, and then when we tried to use it, said, oh, no, you can't walk through time. So someone walked back in time, and then he was like, yeah, so you become disembodied, and you just watch everything that has happened, uh, and then until you get back up to the now, and then you zip back into your body. And we were like, okay, that's weird. And then he was like, oh, well, at least this way we can look into, like, 
scenes of the distant past. But then he was like, oh, no, but you also don't remember anything that happened. And we were all like, <laughs> then why did you give us the socks, man? What? What is this? What is this? Yeah, I think we, I don't remember what we did with them. I'm pretty sure they spent the rest of the campaign in a bag of holding. But so that was not good homebrew because it basically wasn't homebrew. It was a crazy idea that this guy had and did no work on and then immediately didn't want to took commit. back. Yeah. Um, the other possible option for the worst homebrew uh, would have to be some of my own. And that oh, no. would be a certain character by the name of Cave Good Person. Okay, oh, Good Person! <sighs> My favorite boy! <laughs> he was beloved, for sure, and he makes an obligatory appearance in pretty much every game I DM oh, now. Yeah. But uh, Cave Good Person has pretty much no depth whatsoever, and really one note, and that note is, Justice! Which is just, <laughs> you know, he just yells that in the face of danger, and then gets annihilated because he's very weak. And it was not, it was a funny joke, but it's not good homebrew. There's no rules for it. Yeah, it's just, that's it's fair. That's what it is. And then I did things like turn him into an automaton and make it so he couldn't really die and all kinds of strange things started happening. Yeah, so that was that's, not good homebrew. That, that was not actually good. been a thing a where we kind there. of, it's but. like a running joke for us all. Uh, I think we all, basically it's been a, non, uh, a, a non-spoken rule that there's a good person in every campaign yeah. that we've had, and they're just there somewhere, <laughs> and and everybody just walks by them, and they're like, hey, what up? Oh, wait, you're the good person? Yeah, okay, <laughs> we can check this one off the list. This campaign's good. On yep. to the next one. <laughs> yeah, Alan, I don't know if I told you, but um, my good person died. Yeah, I, know, I remember that. I actually... I think that um, I think my good person in Ebonvale, I had them lined up for something, and you guys just didn't go down a street or something like that that you were supposed to. Yeah. And then they just like never came to be, and I was like, ah, well, you know what? They're there, but they're just, still at the end know, of that whatever. street. An unachieved achievement. <laughs> yep, you didn't one hundred percent that campaign for oh. sure. <laughs> Uh, and then, yeah, so, Zach, those were your two. Um, Barry, what are your uh, least favorite homebrews that you've seen? You know, this is a tough one because I don't consume a lot of D&D media. I don't, ironically enough, I don't listen to the podcast. I don't watch Critical Role yeah. or that other one that a lot of people really enjoy. Um I don't watch a lot of videos on it besides explaining aspects of the game. Sure. Like, it takes up a significant portion of my life, but I'm confident enough in my own creativity that I try not to st go out of my way to steal ideas, sure. even inadvertently. Um, I don't know. That's just a personal preference for me. But I don't know. This kind of draws back to Edia again, and I feel like I'm. I, I don't want to target you Zach hey, it's all good but I think I think the worst homebrew I've ever experienced was um the final spell cast in the final Ooh. battle of the Edia campaign yeah yeah that was not well balanced that, that was rough fucked a lot of stuff up. Ra Raven was built for a purpose and building a character for a purpose will always 
in purposes where you're not suited, you're just not going to work. But my god, Raven had this wonderful fight with essentially his nemesis. That's a wonderful word for it. Mm-hmm. Um, just a, a creature similar to him in the same position and mm-hmm. I playing Raven dueled this creature and oh my god. That was one of, if not the outright best session I've ever experienced. Yeah. And granted, coming out of that definitely, you know, biased my mindset into the fight going forward. But I think the reason it was the worst was because it was so unexpected. Yeah. You know, I I was still playing by, you know, homebrew existed, but I didn't know about bending the rules like that. And I thought that, you know, the most powerful magical effects were just the most powerful effects. I had never considered um, powers of the gods or powers of avatars or um, epic level spells. Yep. I that was just something I wasn't my character wasn't built to do, and then was thrust into a, a situation where he he could have succeeded, but with his with my and his biased mindset coming out of this fight having won having triumphed over a lot of his own um mental mental anguishes Mm -hmm. i suppose um going into this fight which was for context he i i i guess i can't speak on it but the way i interpreted that fight is in order for the big bad to complete their plan they just removed us from the equation and that included teleporting us around the world to different places yeah one of the places i got teleported to was the layer of what a, an adult red an dragon if dragon. not like an I ancient the biggest ancient, yep. The game. <laughs> yep yeah which on one hand is like the best compliment anyone's ever given <laughs> that i played a character who was so invincible yeah. that it took that ancient red dragon to take me down but i misunderstood the the aspects of the game you know it was creating a chase scene and i know that's difficult and it was supposed to be gameplay in running but this was a headstrong character who realized far too late that he could not kill what was before him and yeah, and that definitely it, it was just a me. misunderstanding between both of us, you know, with my own biases of like this is how the game should be played, as well as like you saying this is how the game should be played. You know, it was philosophical differences. It was me not being yeah. prepared. It was it, it was just a bunch of stuff stacked. It was up. me not balancing but, anything and just like flinging you guys into a really bad situation without the proper warning. I mean, honestly, there is a lot of things you literally. That that situation concluded with you fighting the dragon for a little bit, getting really hurt, realizing that you weren't going to be able to beat this thing, and then running, and I believe almost escaping, but then you just lost... You, you, almost escaping. You died at the last second. I tried, and I tried to top gun the dragon. <laughs> I said, like, we were both flying, I was gaining on this creature, um, but I was losing abilities fast. Yeah. Um, being a warlock, they don't last long. Nope. And so, me being small, I had this brilliant idea, a wonderful idea. 
a, a warlock, a stealthy, you know, a stealthy boy, and uh, headstrong. And I had this visage in my mind of, you know, this this giant red creature hot on my tail, and I was going to hit the brakes, and he's going to fly right by, and then I would fly in the opposite direction because dexterity. Yeah. And nope, I stopped, messed up the roll, and I got swatted. Yeah, it was over. And that was, and after that, you didn't even, I don't believe you even fully understood that your character was dead yet, because you're like, oh, this is like some mental thing, or this is like a vision, or something like that. Uh, Which, again, totally falls to me, totally falls to me as a DM. I should have described the red dragon better, shown you, hey, this thing is bigger than buildings, like it's the size of a city, you should not fight it. I should have explained exactly what the spell felt like. I should have explained the scenario. I should have explained a lot of things that I didn't explain. Um, and, you know, these things happen. I've learned from it. I hope that you guys have too. But I agree with you. I yeah. think that that was a piece of homebrew that could have been implemented a lot, lot better. And maybe at its core yeah. was fa- was flawed and should not have existed the way that it existed. I mean, if you want a big, bad, evil guy, cool, but giving them the ability to cast epic-level spells when your players are, what, like, levels... You guys were, like, 14? 14, yeah. yeah. That was was misguided on my part, and it was... uh, I was committed to the setting. I was committed to the world that I had built, and I uh, uh, definitely made a misstep there. Yeah, in terms of, like, the cutscenes, or or how, how exactly did you describe them, Zach, the... They weren't scenarios, but settings. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I, I, I don't know. I can't remember. In terms of like, yeah, as a cutscene, everything in that fight would have gone incredible. Like the way I picture it in my mind is still so awesome. Yeah. But I, you know, I did, I myself and had it playing a character, had a character who didn't understand it. I didn't understand it. I saw a big yellow eye, and I thought, ah, yes, death, and yeah. tried to fight this thing. And, you know, it was just it was just butting heads through through miscommunication. It was. Like, it's as much my fault for playing uh, one of the most um, – how, how can I, how can I appropriately say this? Not just headstrong. One of, like, the deepest – emotional murder hobos <laughs> i yeah. could possibly create like a murder hobo but with a reason yeah those are the most dangerous like that character hunted sandworms uh or purple worms no, for fun sandworms. got addicted to heroin and then killed his heroin dealer yep all <laughs> is part of a mental breakdown <laughs> disoriented in a hotel and just killed the guy next to him because he didn't know where he was at and panicked yeah yeah yeah, he he was he was pretty tweaked out, and eventually, like the whole reason this character sort of failed is because he succeeded at everything. I knew what he was supposed to be, so yeah, kind of power gaming. But that was like the disadvantage because then he got really depressed about the fact that he could only ever win. There was no struggle. He just existed. One Punch Man. And the one thing he couldn't have, yeah, One Punch Man, and and the thing he wanted the most, he didn't know how to get Mm -hmm. at all. But everything else that didn't matter to him, he could have. Yeah. 
And so he was like incredibly, incredibly angsty, but um, as he as he kept getting closer and closer, he he rectified this basically dissonance between his abilities, and he was built just incredibly strong. And when faced with that situation, he he met it entirely wrong. Yeah. Throughout, like, everything he had killed, he basically believed he was a god, that he was invincible. Yeah, he I mean, he did everything, including, you know, uh, trigger warning, trying to, like, remove himself from the equation. And that didn't even work. Yeah, the god sent you back. Um, because he went, yeah, he went to the spirit plane, insulted them, and they said, fine, go suffer somewhere else. Yep. But in doing that, he's like, nothing can kill me. Not even me. And yeah. that was, like, the worst mentality he could have had. It was the best for, like, a minute. Like, literally a minute because of his nemesis. Yep. And if he had been... If he had shown any fear, he would have lost. Yeah. If you had escaped that situation, things may have gone differently. You may have, yeah, you may have come exactly. to a realization, oh, there's always a bigger fish. But yeah. you didn't get that chance. I've just been the big fish for a while. Yeah. I think... Here's some other issues... There's a I, no. It wasn't the first dragon you guys had ever seen, but it was definitely the one first one you'd ever fought in that campaign, um, and it was definitely the first chase scene that I can remember that I ever DM'd in that game. There was no precedent for it. You didn't know you were supposed to run away out of game or in game. Like, yeah, there's problems. There's problems with that. So I think I agree with you. I think that was there's maybe a good idea in there somewhere. Um, there's maybe a good way to use. The, the spell that was cast was called Greater Dispersion. There's maybe a good way to implement Greater Dispersion that um, takes people to the edge and makes them realize the force that they're going up against um, and, you know, builds tension for the big bad evil guy that much more. But the way that I did it was too punishing and too out of the blue and did not land. It didn't land. But and once that again, was the end of the this, game. So. This really pulls back to it's okay to fail, right? Yeah. Like, we've... Zach, you've learned a ton from that. I've learned a ton from that. Barry's learned a ton. Yeah, from as that, have I. Right? Like we can't like take a look at that and just say, okay, well we've learned nothing from this. We're only just mad, right? That's impossible because we've learned mm -hmm. so much from experiencing that hardship, right? And just because we we have homebrew that didn't succeed in the way that we wanted to doesn't mean that we only failed, right? Yeah. I my favorite thing to say in life is. I love being incorrect because it's one step closer that I am to being correct. Right? I think that's very wise, Alan. And so, and so, looking at that, we we take this, we look look at this hard situation, we say, okay, we can move on from this. And when we do, we learn so much and we grow as players in D and D, right? And us being able to look at the situation retrospectively, reconcile it, say, you know what? Maybe this was a mistake, but we've learned a lot for the future and we can take this and move forward with it in a very healthy and constructive manner. Yeah, totally. All so, right. Well, that's all of the, the wisdom that I have for the next month and a half. So yeah, I think I'm, I'm tapped out for, yeah, yep. no, no podcast for a year. No, that's a lie. <laughs> that's actually a lie. If that happened, I'd be very sad. Oh, I mean, I think if that but, happened, then there would be no podcast. It would just be us stopping and then making another one in a year. 
Yeah, no one would know if I was sad or not because, you know, they wouldn't have me crooning in their ear to tell them if I was sad about them not being a podcast or not. So who would ever know? The audience will have to make their own. Yeah. They'll have to homebrew their own ideas and their own headcanons on whether I'm sad or not. Listen, and that I'll, will be I'll, the ultimate homebrew. I'll post the program that I use to create Alan's voice on 4chan. So it's, then, yeah, then that's, that's a good idea. Want. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Is there anything else okay, that you guys would that like to talk about? Joke. <laughs> uh, that was great. Right. It was very nice to, uh, to have you on, uh, uh, Alan. And I hope that we have you as a guest in the future. And, um, <laughs> Yeah, thanks for uh, joining I'd Barry and I in our podcast that we've You're been welcome. It's so wonderful to be me. on, Look honestly. I'm the captain now. <laughs> <laughs> it's so wonderful to be on because I've been listening to your podcast for so long, about eight years now, and I've just had so many things I've wanted to say, and it's great to be able to come in here and just continuously interrupt the both of you and just say <laughs> everything that only I want to say. No. So thank you, guys. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, though, uh, audience, you may not know this, but uh, this is actually the second season of this podcast. So uh, Barry and I yeah. did a whole other season, like what, like thirty episodes or something. So you don't know, yeah. you don't know any of the backstory for that. <laughs> you should go look it up, find it, yeah, listen to it. We're not going to tell you the title, though. Nope, there is no title. Yeah. It is untitled. <laughs> it's, it's untitled, and it's not yep. on Apple Podcasts. You have to go find it. <laughs> it's only saved. In the imaginations of our brains. <laughs> okay. Well, guys, I think that's it. Uh, Barry, do you have anything else that you'd like to say? I don't, aside from the fact that I really appreciate like the opportunity to finally come on here and, and get a chance to, to talk with you guys sure. and, and share those experiences with any listeners. I'm glad you think that like my my experiences are valid alongside yours with, with all your many many more years than me playing D&D like it's very heartwarming of course. um for for me to be here yeah, and i look forward to future ones yeah, I'm sure yeah. and i hope that i hope that me being here is not the sole reason for this podcast being the longest one that <laughs> has been recorded i hope the re- i hope the listeners are not um completely burnt out but We'll see. Yeah, again, just thanks, guys. Yeah, no worries, cool. dude. We love having you on, of course, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Zach, do you have anything else you'd like to say, home doggy? Um, I would just like to say that I'm quitting the podcast and I'm moving to Mars. All right, sounds good. Cool. Everybody, oh, damn. that's great. Uh, you know what? That leaves more room for me and my evil machinations. So next week, uh, I will be charging $80 for the next <laughs> podcast. So everybody, thank you for coming. And if you want to hear the next one, it'll be $100. I just raised the price. So have a great day, everybody. <laughs> we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Oh, my God. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. The fact that you have made it here to the end means the world to us. If you enjoyed the show, consider sharing it with your friends, or if you have the time, reviewing us on Apple Podcasts is a great way to show support. Special thanks to Nicole K88 for their recent review on our podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at A Journey's Rest, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash A Journey's Rest Podcast. If you have any questions for us to answer, you can send them in to journeysrestpodcast at gmail.com. 
Thank you so much again for sharing the precious pieces of your time with us, and we hope the rest of your day is wonderful. See you again at our table soon. Thank you.